when we first started talking, it kind of became clear that you accidentally started a 300 person SaaS company out of your real estate business. Uh, you were building tools for uh, sales and you know, lead gen and property acquisition, various things you're doing in your real estate businesses. And I don't, you know, from what I gathered in our er early conversation, you didn't have any intention to build a software company, but essentially you accidentally built this nine figure business. And uh, so you ended up shutting down the real estate companies going all in on software. Uh, prime example, you know, we talk about this a lot in the software industry, uh, be your own customer. So be your own best customer. And that's, you know, you're a prime example of that. I have Jesse Burrell here from Batch Service. Uh, you know, what, what's really interesting about you, Jesse, is that uh, when we first started talking, it kind of became clear that you accidentally started a 300-person SaaS company out of your real estate business. Uh, you were building tools for uh, sales and, you know, lead gen and property acquisition, various things you're doing in your real estate businesses. And I don't, you know, from what I gathered in our er early conversation, you didn't have any intention to build a software company, but essentially you accidentally built this nine figure business. And uh, so you ended up shutting down the real estate companies going all in on software. Uh, prime example, you know, we talk about this a lot in the software industry, uh, be your own customer. So be your own best customer. And that's, you know, you're a prime example of that. Love it. It's awesome. Uh, at what point for you did the light bulb go off where you said, uh, hey, I got to ditch this real estate thing I'm doing and just go all in on software and SaaS? Yeah, great question. And, and thanks again for having me on. And honestly, it was when it was just when we really kept growing and seeing, you know, hyper growth in, in that user count that just kept ticking up. And, you know, we, we had a owners meeting, there's three of us that own the business. And we, we kind of had to make the decision is, you know, do we do we want to compete against the community or support it? And we all wanted to support it. And we also, I've seen a lot of friends and a lot of people, especially small business entrepreneurs, they have too many businesses. And when you do a bunch of different things, you can't build anything to be big. And, and we wanted to go one way or the other. And I, I felt like the best way to really grow something, what I was most passionate about was, you know, building products for you know, what, what I did in my real estate business, because it was so fun. That's what got me from, you know, basically being a, a waiter at a restaurant or, you know, working outside services at a golf course to becoming, you know, an entrepreneur was that real estate. So I was like, I wanted to build the tools and, and help people go through what I did. Cause a lot of people started off as a side hustle for real estate investing. And it changed my life so, so much that I thought it'd be great to be a part of it. Cause I always wanted to coach and love coaching and love helping knowing that we're building something very special. And especially knowing myself using it was, I don't know. It just, it felt like the right thing to do. And um, a few years later, it, it definitely was the right financial decision, but it was also the right decision that fulfills me personally and, and my partners and, you know, having so many great people that work, work with us has been basically a dream come true, to be honest with you. That's awesome, man. I love that. Uh, so I, I started out in food service too, right out of high school. I was doing like waiting tables at Applebee's and crap like that. And uh, I didn't go to college. I saw in some of your social content, you talk about college and uh, how you went, but it, you know, you didn't really 
apply the skills or learn too much from it. But that's awesome. I think that's a, a good grind uh, to do early on. But uh, how did you like what? Why real estate? Like what just like got you to just think of real estate as a, a career trajectory for you? Was it by accident or? <laughs> That was by accident too. Uh, kind of. Uh, one of my good friends, she was a bartender at a restaurant. I was a server. And I think in 2010, she got connected with um, a guy that was out of California that, you know, came to Phoenix because Phoenix got hit so hard. And he started. Um, what, in 2008 area or time frame? Well, yeah, he started in 2010, but you got hit so hard in the Great Recession that properties i mean they lost like 60 70 percent in phoenix so what he did is uh he was israeli and him and a bunch of his friends he started buying all these properties and then basically wholesaling them for a little bit more he go to auctions go to pre-foreclosure short sales make maybe ten thousand dollars on them and then property manage them so then he'd rent them lease them out and then at the same time he's also flipping some of those homes too so she started getting into that and she thought it was super fun and she's like hey we need people to help us find more properties so basically she brought me on and I, I started doing a little bit of property management fulfillment. And then I was mostly looking for opportunities for him to specifically fix and flip homes and learning that skill set really helped me to, to go out on my own. So I soon after got my license and then I could identify good deals. So I started building a network of investors to sell all market deals to. And then I soon after learned about off market deals. And that's when the, the real estate investing journey really, uh, started to prosper I actually partnered with the the young lady that brought me on her name's danielle i three of us ended up forming a wholesale company and before we knew it we were off and running um you know running our first business and um you know learning a lot so it was it was really fun it was it happened fast too so it was pretty cool that's like the trick that i hear in in like flipping and real estate investing you have to uh figure out the, the property acquisition strategy uh, that's like the the top uh you know, uh, you know, competitive advantage or, you know, secret to being profitable from what I can tell. Uh, I have a, fr I have a few friends that flip in Philly and, uh, you know, they kind of like the off market deals here, I think is the, the key. And then also finding the properties on the fringe. Like there's this neighborhood in Philly called Fishtown 15 years ago. It was, you know, probably the average value of a house was two, $300,000. And it was sort of like, uh, considered like a, a bad neighborhood and now their houses are like over a million dollars for a half dilapidated you know 2000 square foot townhouse is like a million dollars on the market it's uh pretty wild but uh like the people who saw that you know i think the like we call them urban uh, ur uh urban pioneers in philly is the term for it uh like those urban pioneers who saw that early and bought those shells for cheap and then you know, rented them and eventually sold them for four or five acts made so much money. Right. Uh, is there something like that in Phoenix and other cities? Or is that more unique to Philly? No, we, we have that as well. We've had a few pockets that went absolutely crazy uh, as well. But as you speak to, and that's basically what our, our, um, our software does, it helps. Um, we have all these different data points, and you're able to chop up um, nationwide data and we have a lot of distress indicators on homeowners. Um, you know, are they absentee? Is it a vacant home? Have they owned it for X amount of years? Do you have this much equity? And you're, you could build your own list and then start going and marketing to those people or reaching out to see, you know, 
you know, they're more likely to potentially want to sell in, in certain positions. And you, you hit it on the head. It's, um, you know, off market, it's always going to be better than on market. It just depends on the homeowner situation. You know, do you want to sell for convenience, ease and make it simple and not make any repairs? Or do you want to sell, you know, on the MLS? So it's it's just another sub market of, you know, real estate. And we're lucky enough to build out some pretty cool tools to have a lot of people have, you know, success because the end of the day, it's um, you make all your money. And this is what my first boss told me, a mentor taught me was you make it on the purchase. That's where you make your money. You make it or you lose it on your purchase. If you buy bad, you can't fix it for cheaper to make more profits. You have to buy right and you have to be disciplined enough to buy right. So that, that was something I learned the very, very beginning was, you know, don't be desperate and always make sure that you buy right. All right. So tell me one where you got your ass handed to you on it. Just oh, spent way too much and like lost money and, you know, everything went wrong. Uh, it's never actually happened. I've had... <laughs> <laughs> it one, never happened once i've always been pretty disciplined i've lost the worst i've ever personally lost on a deal was like two thousand bucks wow uh, that's crazy and that was because me and my now fiance had a very horrible miscommunication on the exit strategy of the property is we got an airbnb together so i added a fourth bedroom remodeled it a certain way to get maximum revenues and i was thinking she was managing it. She was thinking I was supposed to manage it. So we ended up having to just sell it because neither of us had the time at that time. And I ended up having to take like a $2,000 loss because I spent so much money on the remodel. And I spent a little bit more because it was in a great location for vacation rentals. So I was willing to spend a little bit more because of just the returns that we would get as a B&B. And it was frustrating because it was like a pretty big remodel. It took months. It took a lot of time and I ended up losing money. So that wasn't the funnest one. But I've never had, I've had a few friends that I've had, you know, six figure losses and multiple six figure losses by taking big swings. But I've always been the one that's slow and steady. I was like, I don't need to get rich fast. Like I am, I'm good. Um, and I'll, I'll do it slow and steady. Yeah, interesting. Um, I have heard stories of, you know, plywood you know lumber getting stolen and you know uh contractors taking money and not doing work and you know like markets changing quickly hard money lending going wrong where you can't get permits fast enough and then you end up paying a crap load of interest on on your uh initial hard money loans and uh that's pretty amazing how many flips have you done total uh hundreds hundreds but wow. So I, and this was over a lot of years, but as I said, all the things you're saying are completely true. So my friends that have lost a lot of money on deals, it's bad contractors to where they would run off and steal money and do stuff like that. And the other thing was uh, big, you know, big flips with a lot of permitting. I always stayed below uh, the median income house pricing and I would never do a flip that cost me more than $50,000. So I never pulled permits. So I had very strict criteria of how I bought. If if I came across those properties that, you know, are much bigger, that's where um, wholesaling would come into play. I would contract it and then sell it to another investor that specializes in that. So I'm making money on the front end and then I'm done with it. So I just had a very strict way I did things. I've worked with the same contractor for 10 years. I could trust him. He's like family to me. He's a good friend of mine. And I didn't want to use a bunch of crews. So I'd always just be doing one to two properties at a time. I just never 
was one to try and run too fast. As I said, I was just slow and steady. And what I know and what I'm good at was that. And I stuck to it. And that's what a lot of real estate investors get into trouble is when they're trying to see what everyone else is doing and how everyone makes money. You know, get get great at something and just be proud that you're great at that. You don't need to be great at every single aspect of, you know, being a, a real estate investor. I got one quick uh, side tangent story that's hilarious to me. And uh, then I want to move on to the software stuff. But right. uh, so I can talk I, about real estate forever. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my same friend I was talking about earlier that flips in Philly, uh, he's moving into this new neighborhood called Strawberry Mansion, which is probably the next fish town in 10 years from now. But it's still definitely the hood now. Yeah. And uh, so he's got two or three properties going there. And uh, one of them, you know, he he built, he buys like lots and builds on them, like four or five unit buildings. Nice. And uh, one of them uh, is under construction right now. And he uh, showed up to the job site a couple, like a month or two ago, and his generator and a bunch of his tools and plywood were all missing. Uh, but someone, there was a shopping cart there. Someone put all the stuff in a shopping cart and they put a box of nails with a hole in it in the shopping cart. And wheeled it back to their house and they left like a breadcrumb trail, like a Hansel and Gretel trail of nails all the way back to their house. So my friend's an idiot. He's like unarmed and like follows the breadcrumb trails back to the house. And I I mean, this is some real balls. I mean, he literally walks. It's like a abandoned house with the squatters stole his stuff. So he walks into this abandoned house with the squatters and like gets in an argument with them and just takes the stuff back and leaves. And I'm like, man, I'm surprised you didn't get stabbed or something. That's just uh, totally uh, like the, you know, kind of like the the brazen, you know, uh, <laughs> just like what stroll right up in there. That that cracks me up. Yeah, you should you should have protection there. But a lot of the times they're just taking stuff and they don't want any trouble. I've I've dealt with crazy crazy situations when you know buying these off market deals. There's a reason why people aren't selling them on the market in it's some type of physical financial or time bound stress. And there there's been some wild things or bad tenants. And, um, but we can move to the software. Cause I could, I could tell these stories. I have way too many of them. And, uh, they're quite interesting though. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the software. Uh, that's my space. I love software. Uh, how, uh, you know, in, in software, it's always, if you can hit this, you know, make it 10 X better and 10 X cheaper, you've just, nailed it. And, you know, when companies grow at the speed that yours grows, usually that's when you make it 10x better and 10 times cheaper for the user base. And it's kind of like a game changer. A recent example of that is Jasper AI. I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, they generate content using the GPT-3 machine learning model. And, uh, you know, it's like 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper than content writers. Uh, So is that uh, that what you did in, in your industry? Did you make it 10x faster, 10x faster or better and 10x cheaper for the real estate investment community? I want to, not really, honestly. Uh, What we did was there's a lot of tools that you had. There's a lot of different software tools that you have to use to, to make your cog work. And we built a bunch of them to work together within batch service. So actually, yeah, because we're much cheaper as, as if you condense all the services into, into one. 
it, it was more just time. And I guess you're making it faster because they're able to use the tool faster. So yes, I guess the short answer, the way you put it is. But if you're out banging doors and like dropping off flyers and, you know, you're right. trying to acquire yeah. properties the old fashioned way, you know, cold calling. I mean, what does it cost to do that versus what does it cost to use your platform to aggregate the deals for you? Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's probably like a hundred times faster and, and a lot cheaper. So yeah, it's, you know, where, where you could aggregate the data and then, you know, cold calling with, we have a power dialer solution to where our data is talked to each other and you're able to do a lot of different things. So we just, you know, that was the thing when I was real estate investing was, it was really hard to have all these tools of place to host your data, place to know what properties you've already went after what you're targeting, how you're targeting it. And once we built a tool to where people could use it and it was simple to use, um, that's when it really started taking off and having enablement tools in there where you're able to text, you're able to call, you're able to go drive for dollars virtually using Google and um, having a place to store your data and look through your data and VAs help you with that. And we just created a solution that was so much better than anyone else in our industry at the time. And then we also had some of the big coaches in the industry that were using it and it was helping their businesses grow. So they promoted the heck out of it and it just caught fire, honestly, in the industry. And before we knew it, we were off and running and we we're just trying to keep up with demand and make sure that we could give the right customer experience as people were coming on. And that was that was the hardest part at the beginning was just, I, I always said we were customer obsessed. So I wanted to make sure a lot of our competitors didn't have sales reps or didn't have account managers or SDR or sorry, uh, CSMs that were actually reaching out, making sure that they're understanding the system using it. And that's something that I was passionate about that I wanted to make sure that people were staying on and people were having success. And that was kind of one of our differentiators is the other software is kind of just automated it with the automated journey. I wanted a human touch because real estate is so complex and there's so much that goes into it. Uh, um, I think that you, you need to have someone there besides a video to watch to, to answer questions because it's it's just not black and white real estate there's tons of gray so i, I have a friend who has a SaaS company uh in the automotive space and uh, one of the things that he built into his application is all these triggers that alert the csm team uh like if you know there, there should be a certain number of uh, purchase orders on his platform generated every day or there's a high likelihood that the customer is headed to churn it's like yep. a 90% predictability uh, that yep. they'll churn within a month if they stop generating X amount of purchase orders per day. Mm -hmm. But uh, if, you know, if you see it happen, like the day they stop doing it or within like two days or three days, if they don't generate it within two or three days, you have the CSM reach out and like figure out what's going on and troubleshoot. Or, you know, if they click through the same thing in a loop too many times, then that generates, you know, potentially like different triggers like that, where uh, if you see these patterns from the customers, it alerts the CSM team. So they're proactive about reaching out as opposed to waiting for them to churn and asking what happened and getting a bullshit answer or, uh, you know, or just, you know, trying to uh, wait for them to reach out with a problem. Uh, do you guys do anything like that? Or uh, do you have any kind of like proactive CSM strategies? Yes. And it was it was mostly on a touch scale at the beginning because we didn't have the tools or I didn't have the leadership to build that out. That's so funny you're talking about that. That's actually like what we're working on now is identifying uh, churn predictability and having triggers so we're able to reach out quicker. So for us, it's if they haven't logged in for X amount of days because they should be generating leads and doing these things. So like 
now we have triggers if you know someone signs up and they haven't logged in you know we have triggers of csms to call or we have triggers both ways so you know detractors and promoters if someone's doing it enjoying it talking good about it then it's uh reaching out to them seeing if they needed to upgrade or want to expand their business or if they want to leave a review or um if they'll even hop on you know batch tv behind me and talk about the success that they've had so we we have it actually both ways to where we're triggering on both sides for the csms to reach out that's cool um do you guys do any uh like uh mailers for uh either buying properties or to existing uh you know what, what would you say like uh people basically trying to sell sell their uh their properties so for people who are trying to buy properties you, you're mailing to the sellers or the potential sellers yeah we have we do have direct mail to where you could build your list create a campaign upload that and then send it out through through our software so that's as i said you want to identify the people that you're looking to buy from so we have as i said you could text you could call you could send direct mail um and then you could also build ways to go door knock for people that want to door knock or go door to door and, and talk to people so we have as many and how does that work the door knocking part i mean people will aggregate lists and then create a route and then go you know knock on doors and see if people want to sell it's just like you know like you guys store. crowdsource like gig economy the door knockers or is that for no the... we don't do that we just we you know our customers will will do that ah, okay i i just provide the software now i'm not i'm not sending mailers to anyone okay all right i got you that's cool so um I saw on your LinkedIn, it was like a really distinct hard cut. It was like July, 2018, you know, real estate business over batch services is on, but uh, yeah. I'm sure it was like more of a gradual transition where you're building these tools pre July, 2018 inside of your real estate businesses. And then you're using them for yourself. And then at some point you got customers to use them. And then at some point you're like, holy crap, we're making way more money on this. So it's time to just go all in here. Uh, was that July 2018 when that holy crap happened or what was wow. like the timeline and progression there? 2020. Uh, it was actually right before COVID, which was ironic. Uh, one, because it was COVID was, you know, COVID-19 was very weird at first and then it exploded. So I see all my friends just going ballistic, you know, um, you know, the end of 2020, beginning of 2021 when the market just caught fire. But no, we we made the decision uh, right before it, we were at that inflection point to where, you know, we were still very profitable and doing a great job on the investing side of of things in that business. But in, in investing, it's tough because it's as I, a lot of the people you hire, they, they want to be you. They don't want to work for you. So there's just it's a churn machine. And we started churning through people again. And at that point, we're like, I don't want to rehire and rebuild and, and do this again. Um, and our passion and focus was really starting to go towards batch to where we just, we wouldn't have been great owners or bosses to the people when we're not all in on that side. So we just made the decision to to slowly shut it down. And then the people that were left over on the real estate investing team, those are great people that wanted to stay to come into batch service and then help the customer because they did what all these people were doing. So it was, I still have three, four, five people that worked for me on the investing side that are still over here on batch service, hanging out and been able oh, to watch awesome. them. So what percent, when you shut down the real estate, what percent of your personal income was batch service versus the uh, flipping business? 
It was, it was probably like two to one. It wasn't like two to one match services or match yeah, service. So, yeah. It wasn't like some insane amount to where we're making a fortune here and nothing here. It was, it was a hard decision. It took us about six to eight months to get there because, and we knew how to keep making money. And then also, acquiring- but if you're already two to one though, like, you know, this software scales and like real estate kind of doesn't, you know, it maybe slowly scales, but. But at the same time, when acquiring a lot of rental properties and that long-term wealth and finding those great off-market deals, that comes from owning your own business, not buying it from someone else. So that, that was kind of the hard part is, you know, if we ever find deals now, we're finding it through realtors or finding it through other investors that are going to market up to us when we know that we can go source it ourselves and get it for cheaper. So that was for, for long-term wealth, that, that, that was the harder part for me was knowing that I'm not going to be able to see these really good deals and be able to keep them and put them in my, in my portfolio anymore. So mm-hmm. um, it kind of was what it was, but you know, I, I don't regret the decision. I, I hope, when and if we exit on batch that there's a good chance that I'm going to go back in and start buying huge multifamily and get back into real estate to grow further. Um, so it will, I'm curious to see what happens because the, the evolution and the cycle of this whole thing may end up being quite funny. <laughs> it's like full circle. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that a bunch of times. Uh, it's funny though, man. I like, I know a ton of people who exit and you know, they all, you know, they make like life-changing money. They don't need to work again. And then they're just, you know, they all go through the same pattern where it's, it's like, uh, they have all this time, they go travel, do a bunch of fun stuff for like a month or two. And then they get back and they're just like, holy shit, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. And it's immediately head first back into something else or like 10 things. (laughs) Right. I, I, I think the funnest part of this whole entire thing is the purpose and the journey and the people that, you know, we get to help. Like the the best thing that's the thing I'm most proud of over ever since I started becoming entrepreneurs last year, we got a 2022 best place to work. And that's not an easy award to get that shows the level of commitment that, you know, we have taught down to to treating people right and people being committed to a vision and a product. So it's the the purpose is the part. So the the exiting is we'll see when and if that happens, but that's not why I do this. It's, it's just a part of it. Like once we could only get it to a certain place, like then I have to do a duty to the whole entire team to have someone take over and grow it to the next evolution. And until that day comes, I'm happy to kick ass here and do as much as I can. How big do you think batch service could be if you guys IPO'd and tried to eat the world for real estate software? How big do you think? Is it like app folio level or bigger or how big do you think it could get? I don't know. It, it depends on the direction that we take it. But, um, you know, I, I think staying private, there, there's no reason why we couldn't sell for one to three billion dollars before someone wanted to go do whatever they wanted to do with it. I don't think we don't want to go public. Um, I'd rather grow this and sell it to a strategic partner. So you'd have and, to be doing like 150 million to probably 100, 150 million to get a probably like one to one and a half billion valuation. So three, you might be doing like 300, you know, three, 400 million or something in revenue. Yeah. And I think we already have a path and to, uh, over a hundred that I see very clearly. So and that's not even touching some of the personas and, and some of the other uh, industries that we want to go after, because there's a lot of overlap between real estate investors, 
you know, home service, solar uh, agents. We don't touch quite too much yet. Um, pool guys, like there's a lot of ways to where um, the way people want to get in touch with homeowners and chop that data up for their specific industry or niche. We're just finally dabbling and wanting to go really into those different personas and people are getting excited because a lot of these other industries do it very, very old school and archaic ways. So the the toughest part there will be the education. But once we could educate and it could catch fire, I, I think we could have um, some big growth over the next couple of years as well. That's really awesome. Uh, I was thinking at first when you're like one to three billion, I'm like, who would acquire um, for that price? Who would acquire? It would have to be like private equity to buy a uh, flipper uh, SaaS business. But uh, when you get into all the other industries and you've got these huge like Angie's lists and, uh, you know, these other, uh, you know, Zillow's and like software, uh, you know, Goliaths, uh, that would, you know, potentially be a fit for an acquisition target like that. There's also, um, think of like the fidelities. There's a couple of big title companies that have bought some places in my space that want that customer base to where they could use them for title. They could use their data for their title reps to give out. And it just kind of grows. There's also think of the core logics, the black knights, the big data aggregators. If we become a big enough thorn um, in some of their sides that they may just want to gobble us up and then use some of our operating systems, um, you know, to to their big group of people on the B2B side. So there's we we have some places that we're trying to maneuver and see what what they're wanting, and what they're looking for. But at the end of the day, right now, all we're trying to do is just help our customers grow their businesses and find other opportunities and new verticals to where we could help us, uh, you know, help people grow their businesses as well. And then we're obviously trying to get a little bit more downstream in some bigger B2B plays and, and other companies, because we do have batch data, which is a software to where we have, you know, big data licensing and API licensing. There are other softwares that need some of the stuff that we've built out on our API, we could plug into them and and help power their software. So we we have that side that we've just started dabbling in. Last year, we launched that and we're finally starting to get some real momentum there with some of the ways and positioning that we've done things as well. So that's that's what I'm truly most excited about is, is that side is going to be really fun to, to dive into this these next couple of years. Cool. There's a video online. Uh, you can probably find it if you search for it. I think it's 1997 or 1998, uh, an interview with Jeff Bezos when he was a book website uh, and small, you know, right when they first started, uh, I think it was pre-IPO and the interviewer asked him, uh, so how big uh, can this really get? Like, how are you going to compete with Barnes and Nobles? And he goes, I, I don't know. I think e-commerce is the future. I think maybe someday this could be a hundred million dollar company. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you think that could be, uh, like, do you think this interview could be that video for you where you're like, yeah, maybe I'll sell it for like one, one to $3 billion. And then, you know, 10, 20 years later, it's like, uh, you know, trillion dollar market cap or something. Is that, is that in your cards at all? Or it could be, I mean, I'm crazy enough to, to want to do it. And, you know, they say, you know, big data is the new oil. So it just depends on strategy and what we acquire and how you pivot because you know if let's say we did get two trillion dollars what we are today would be absolutely nothing like we'd be in five ten twenty years it's companies that grow and stay ahead of the curve have to evolve and evolve quickly and acquire or have strategic partnerships or be ahead of the curve to where 
you know, that's a possibility. Um, I like to say I dream big, so I, I never say anything's out of the question. But right now, we kind of just have a roadmap, and we're trying to figure out how we could disrupt as much as possible. And, you know, I, I'm like, how do we stop evolving and start being more revolutionary instead of evolutionary? And, and that's what I've been looking for. And that's where a lot of my focus is on is roadmapping, planning, and what's the next big thing? Like, where's the next big thing to where we could be early, but not too early to where adoption's not there yet. And that's, that's what I've been looking for too. Like we have a lot of great stuff. We have a lot of great opportunities, but like I'm looking for that next revolutionary thing that we could really go take market share and have no idea what it is. No idea. Well, I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit. You started talking about, uh, you know, moving into the home services space. So you're, you're, you know, pretty much a, a suite of four products now. Uh, and, it, you know, early in our last conversation, you talked about how you have like these four uh, separate products that right. are being rolled up into one and then uh, like kind of one business sort of one like platform. And then so that's where you're at today servicing the uh, the flipper industry. So like the house flipping real estate investment industry. And then uh, there's like this big expansion opportunity for you know, you said roofers and, you know, home service providers and plumbers, yeah. whatever, like whoever's servicing the home. Uh, I have to imagine though, there's so many other uh, ancillary businesses, like realtors is one you mentioned. Uh, and you've got like these big realtor uh, outfits that probably would be, you know, high, uh, high value customers, but uh, to integrate into their, their realtor uh, sort of like franchise offering. But uh yeah. There's you know, title then, then, lenders, lenders as well, title companies. Um, there, there's a lot. It's any, it's basically any company that wants you know to to use property homeowner information and data that that they're trying to market to. We have a million different ways to aggregate and all these different you know ways that people can manipulate the data to find out okay, what homeowners do I want to help and how do I reach out to them? You know, that's, that's basically what we are as a property intelligence and, and solution. We just started with real estate investors, but there's a lot of different places, but if you try and be good at everything, you're great at nothing too. So we're, there's a balancing act of like, you know, each different vertical or persona does stuff a little bit differently to where you can't just try and go after everyone. You really have to nail down and get that product market fit. and definitely the next one right now is in is in home service for sure so i during the pandemic i uh tried the suburbs for a year and uh my wife and i moved out we bought a house in the suburbs and uh clearly it didn't work out we were city people but uh i digress uh we we during while we were there we needed a new roof so we got a new roof installed and uh the roofer comes out and you know just had some app where he just you know, basically took a, a, you know, satellite image of the roof, and then the application quoted the roof for him, he just put in what type of materials and what color, you know, what color shingle and yep. how many, you know, man hours or whatever. And then it just quoted all the material costs and estimated the man, the man hours of the, you know, the labor and, and whatnot, I think it was called Eagle Eye or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I don't, I don't recall the exact name of the app. But uh that was pretty cool. And uh, is that sort of some of the products that you could see yourself getting into? Or is that too far away from batch service? Uh, no, that's something we're already actually working on. So there is products that have that. And that's something that we want to have for that industry. 
But what those products don't have is how do you get in front of that homeowner um, without an inbound lead? So if you're wanting to do any outbound or any outreach, that's where we would be different. But we want to have some of those things too, to where we already actually have the technology to do that and have that built into our API. We just have to build it and put it on the roadmap as a feature. But that's so cool to where, so people, so think about this. If you're doing outbound, you're able to use our software and then you could just call the person and through our technology, you don't even have to go to the appointment. You could actually do it all from a phone call. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Speeds up uh, sales and quoting time. And uh, the only thing you might lose there, uh, and I'm curious your opinion, is the relationship with the homeowner uh, and the ability to, uh, you know, kind of have a, uh, you know, if if they're getting four quotes and three are just virtual and they don't really meet the the person and they don't get a vibe and then they have one person they meet in person that's got a vibe and they vibe with that person, the, th the three virtuals might lose it, do you think? I agree. I, I think there's two ways to do it is, you know, you try and close it over the phone. And if you can't, then, you know, someone goes out, but at least that's a much more qualified or vetted lead to where when you do go out, you're going to close, you're not going to do the dog and pony show. Someone's already done that too. So think, think of just being able to use like that person as the SDR or BDR on that phone call that potentially could close. And then if they can't, then that's when you send the sales rep, but it's a much more vetted lead at that point to where, okay, this is where we're at. This is maybe where they have notes on where their questions are and then let that person have some information to go build the rapport and, and you know, go get that book of business. I, I think belly to belly is always the best thing, but people are changing and some people just don't want to meet you. Some people do. So I guess it just depends on the, on the person or the client. I love the uh, the belly to belly uh, saying. It's always uh, it, it always makes me have this visual in my head of like two guys, like two big beer belly guys <laughs> in a bar with like, you know, like their shirts over, over their belly button, like you know, doing a uh, what do you call it when you like do the the belly? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bumping chests <laughs> cracks me up every time that visual. But uh, all right, I want to pitch you an idea and uh, like just tear it down or, uh, or, you know, let me know if it's any good, but you know, if it's bad, just say, shut up, Brian, don't, don't do real estate. But, uh, so I've seen this in like industries, especially with, uh, you know, like data connectivity, like ISPs, Fi you know, Fios, Comcast sort of thing, uh, having like an army of door knockers. And, uh, what if there's an army of door knockers that sells everything? So it's like, tree services, roofing, uh, you know, plumbing, like just all the services. Also, uh, they're trying to acquire properties in certain neighborhoods as well. And it's like you guys built this like gig economy, like Uber style or like DoorDash style army of door knockers and train them on different things to sell. And it essentially created like a blanket strategy to just go out and like tackle neighborhoods one at a time uh, and then sell that as a service to uh, to home services or to real estate investors or, you know, whatever, is that a business that could have merit or is that just like too much that would, you know, create too much headache and, and overhead? I, I like the idea, but why not just do it with calling and then selling the leads? If I were going to do anything, that's probably what I would do is, is aggregate all those big lists, hire an army of virtual assistants, not door knockers and start lead generating for each of the industries that we know very well to where 
we have a tool that could say, hey, here, you know, if you want to do it, here, have your outbound motion. But we also have a service to where we provide leads for you. If I were going to ever do something like that, um, which I have done in the past, you know, for the real estate investing side, I feel like that's scalable and that that's a way to do things is, is vetting leads, creating leads, because I did lead generation. And then for each industry, just understanding those ones. But I think it'd be more more effective to to have an army of people cold calling outreach. You know, there, there'd be multiple things, not just cold calling, but, you know, direct mail, a bunch of different ways to do it um, and then just sell leads. Um, so you've done that for home services, too, or mostly for uh, buying off market deals? Mostly for buying off market deals. But, you know, the motion's not that much different. Understand what they want. All I have to do is go build lists and, and get in front of the homeowners and um, identify who's most likely to do X and then use our software to build that. And then we could do some ML um, as we learn this stuff. And then, you know. I love that, man. I'm like super uh, into the ML space these days. But uh, curious, what what are like the KPIs on that? So how many, like what's your conversion rate? How many touch points on average do you need to make to get a conversion? Uh, so if you have like 100 prospects, what percentage will turn into an interested seller? And uh, how many touch points do you have to hit each of those interested sellers to get them to, you know, express interest? It depends. So you're talking about for like a real estate investor? Uh, yeah, let's yeah. start there. And I'm curious, like, just how much like horsepower it would take to build a, uh, you know, sort of like this virtual lead gen, uh, you know, oh, outfit. it'd take a lot. So per person, I would say you, you get on industry average, you're gonna get maybe two warm leads a day, you know, let's let's just use cold calling, for an example, two a day. Um, you need about 30 leads warm leads to close one, but you have to build a pipeline. You never know when that's going to close. So technically a cold caller should get you um, two deals a month. Um, hypothetically. Like two, two deals that are uh, a good, uh, a good buy, essentially. Yeah, a good buy. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be buying the homes. I'd just be selling the leads. So then you'd have to reverse engineer. Okay. Typically in this market, what, what type of profit are they going to make from buying this home or, or what does that number mean to them? And then I'd have to see how much would I sell those leads for to make sure that they're still making a nice, healthy return on investment. Cause I know a lot of people that just provide the, the cold callers for someone and we'll give them the leads. But like, if I were ever to do it, I would want to, to literally vet the leads and say, here are your warm leads, just go close them. You know what I mean? So it would probably be more, that's why I don't want to do it. It's just like, I don't want to create a, I don't want to create an agency and have a thousand more. Yeah. It's uh, basically what that becomes as an agency. Cause like how many, how many would you sell it to just one real estate investor in that case? Or how many, uh, you sell no, it to like two or three or something or four. It just depends on how big you want to try and do it. Did you want to make it exclusive to where they're paying? You're only having two or three people per big market or can anyone do it? And you're just selling the leads. I mean, the I think that's people. almost a newsletter business. You know, if you uh, if you create like a newsletter and then just send it to everyone, everyone gets it, and uh, as many people can subscribe to it as as they want. And uh, I don't know, what do you think about that? And just have basically have a list of like people addresses or whatever that are interested, and then uh, you create. I don't know, maybe you create the intro somehow. I don't know, but uh, that might like a data a data email like a once a day or once a week email 
be interesting. Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways you could do go a lot of different routes. We're just trying to stay ultra focused, you know, where we're at. I love these, these hypotheticals because I do think about them, but the last thing I really want to do is is go create an army of doing lead generation. Uh, if I were to do that, I'd probably buy a business and then that had opportunity and scale it. I don't, I don't want to go build it from scratch. I want something that had good SOPs and something. And But that's just not, that's not our core business. I don't want to go do that right now, but I would never say never. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of opportunity there too, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I just I love riffing on just different, uh, just different business ideas and in all different industries. But uh, I agree with you, though, man. Focus is always the best, and that's that's my problem. Is that I'll, uh, you know, I'll just see all these different things and you know, kind of go in different directions. But uh, like I, I ideation uh, overload. Uh, but I I appreciate that you have a vision and stay focused on it. Uh, all right. So you bootstrapped your company, uh, transitioned in full time to it, shut down the other real estate businesses in 2020, but you've mm-hmm. been building the products in, inside of your real estate business previously. Um, uh, you, uh, you got a lot of lessons learned, obviously not coming out of the software space and then going in, you know, head first, diving into the deep end of software and data. Uh, one of the things you said to me is that focusing on talking less about what went right and more about what went wrong in the journey. And like, what were those lessons learned? Like what, what were the biggest, if you could pick out three uh, of your biggest, most painful lessons, what were they? Um, biggest would probably be not uh, just coming where we come from having it's, it was a much more commission based and there wasn't salaries and W2s and, you know, real estate investing was different was like, understanding the value you you get what you pay for so being more open to you know bigger salaries knowing that people could make bigger impacts we were trying to be you know we're we're penny smart dollar stupid if that makes sense with some of our hires of like oh well they're way cheaper and they're almost as good or i think they could be almost as good when when that's not true like when you get the most talented they know they're worth um so it's just hiring, I think hiring the right people um, more quickly was probably one of the biggest mistakes. And and another big mistake was uh, we had quite a few evolutions of growing and learning and um, just getting better, you know, as, as a software company with SOP systems, processes, how we do things. Um, and unfortunately, we outgrew people that weren't, you know, we, we hired people that weren't software people either because we weren't. And probably not repositioning them or getting off them quicker. Uh, it cost us time. It didn't cost us too much money. It didn't hurt us too bad, but it cost us time to grow exponentially and and do things and move quicker. And those were some of the the bigger mistakes that that happened early with us for sure. Were you uh, obsessive in the early days about the product and how it worked and uh, the just the the nuance and the details of it? Um. My partner oversees product, um, and he's pretty freaking smart. I was always obsessed with customer feedback and making sure they were happy and and feeding him product roadmap ideas to make sure that uh, everyone could be nothing but excited and just knowing that we're releasing and we're building and we're pouring into the product and we're reinvesting our money. like That was what I really focused on probably the first couple of years and just selling the shit out of it, to be honest with you, making sure the sales team 
understood what our competition were, what we were, how we were different, how we cared differently, and how we wanted to see success from all of our customers. And we just ingrained that into our sales CS and AM team was make sure that they're succeeding. Like it's about the customer. If they don't succeed, we don't succeed. If they don't succeed, they're churning or they're canceling. Like this is this is a you know mutually beneficial relationship and we both have to be on the same page. Yeah, that's good. Um, I just had uh, Mike Krupit, uh on. He was the most the most recent episode that went live. Uh, he was on a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he's he's done like eight companies. A couple went public. Uh, you know, a couple were uh, you know pretty large market caps. Uh, I don't know exactly how large, but I think for sure in the nine figures, if not ten. And uh, I, I don't want to misquote, but it was big big market caps and. Uh, he uh that was one of his lessons learned was not to uh you know it, one of his later companies he went right into ceo mode right from the beginning and yeah. didn't have an obsession he hired smart people that he thought were the right people but he he wasn't like the irrational obsessive uh you know tyrant founder who was you know wanted to have hands in every single detail for the first 50 employees or so uh, until it was like a, you know, proven market fit business that then could scale like, you know, an enterprise. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I've seen that a bunch of times where, you know, CEOs, you know, executives come out of big companies and try to go right into CEO mode or right into executive mode. And it's almost always an indicator that the company is going to fail it, you know, from what I've seen. Uh, and, I, you know, Mike's learnings agreed with that. Uh so I think maybe, you know, for you guys, like being in the real estate industry, being your own customer, uh, like that obsession over the products and, you know, to your point, if the, if it's not a mutual win-win with the customer, then it's, uh, you both fail, you know, they fail, they, they invest money and trust in you guys. And then, you know, you invest in acquiring the customer and then losing the relationship and probably not, you know, if you don't hit your J curve on it, maybe you've lost money on the customer account and then, uh, it's a lose-lose. So it has to be a win-win or that churn happens. Uh, so it sounds like your partner was probably that like obsessive tyrant over the product. <laughs> we, we both were in. To, to your point, it's so funny you just brought that up is I was talking with my partner and we were just rifting in the last couple of weeks of like, you know, if we were to sell, what would purpose be? What would this be? Like, do we want to sell? Do we not want to sell? And so we're just doing hypotheticals if we did. And it's so funny because I brought this up. And I was like, you know, honestly, let's say we were to sell. And then I was like, we're crazy enough to just try and go do something crazy all over again. And I looked at him and I go, we have to bootstrap it. And he goes, why? And I was like, because if we're not obsessed and in it and get the product market fit, it's not going to work. So it's so funny you brought that up because that's where my head went. I was like, you can't just go to the top and say, go do this while we're creating product market fit. Like, I have to be crazy passionate about whatever we're building and why we're building it bring those people in inspire them get them on the vision quest with you and then you all go knock it out together but like especially those i'd rather burn my own money up and fail than go just say hey i have an idea i'm gonna raise money that's just not how i am i'd rather burn it up and lose it um trying to create product market fit now this next time i'd maybe use my money, get the product market fit, then raise and go hyper grow it instead of bootstrapping it like we did. Cause I think we could be further along if we did get money to where we are today. 
but I'd be devalued, you know, with my equity and I'd have a boss, which I don't like either. So I probably bootstrap it anyways. I just use my own VC <laughs> money, I suppose. But it's funny. My point was, it's funny. I'm getting long winded that you brought that up because I was like, we have to be all in. I was like, we the first year we're, we're going to, I was like, I got to be the sales rep. I got to be the product manager. Like if I'm not passionate about it, it's just, it's not going to go anywhere because the, the first 50 are the most important. They're going to help build that culture and and believe in you. I've always said is like, especially as like, where my Tom Brady's at, you know, if I'm Robert Kraft and then there's Bill Belichick, I have great managers. Where's the Tom Brady's? You need those great ICs that hold each other accountable, that do these things. And it is from the vision and the passion and in the success. So I've always been very conscious of culture, of people, of leaders, but like, you have to have the Tom, like if you're really good or department's really good, you have Tom Brady's in there. You have the people holding each other accountable to where the managers and the executives don't have to inspire. You already have someone in there doing the inspiring for you. And peer to peer, that's way more powerful than manager or executive to, to peer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it'd be a hell of a recruiting pitch too. you know, do you want to be the first 10 hired and work, work alongside this founder team that just had their last exit for one to $3 billion. And, uh, you know, now this is their new business, <laughs> get some, uh, early stage equity. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's a hell of a recruiting pitch as well to get the, you know, second time around, get the top notch, uh, you know, a players right, right from the start. And, uh, you know, and that the, those early hires are so important, especially in a product company, because those first five people are going to be the people that hire the next 50. And those 50 are going to be the people that hire the next 500. And uh, like those people are the ones that, you know, need to understand what you're creating. Otherwise, it just gets chaotic later. But I've I've also heard read and kind of experiences too, to where you, you level up people, but someone that's going to get you from zero to one million could be different from the person that's going to get you from one to 10 and then 10 to 50 and then 50 to hundred and then so on and so forth to where I've had, I've seen a lot of people and read a lot about people failing that hire that person. Like if they're not getting nitty and gritty and dirty, like that great executive is someone you should hire two or three years from now, not when you're starting because mm. that zero to one is a totally different person than the person from 50 to 200. They're just yeah. it's different. It's like you want you want those gritty fighters at the beginning. They necessarily don't have the best strategy. Now they may get some equity, but you may have to replace them or they're going to be less important in the future. But a lot of the times you're going to get this person that wants everyone to do everything for them when you're starting something back up or you're brand new into it. That's where I think a lot of people fail is you're hiring the person you should hire two years from now. Um, but on on the start, I wouldn't do it any different way. We had everyone scratching, clawing, doing every creative stupid thing with not a lot of systems and tools you can't have all the bells and whistles when you first start something it's too expensive and you just don't need it yeah it's interesting why do you think so many extremely successful founders come out of google because google's like this massive enterprise machine and you'd think that a company like that would still you know like they've lost the entrepreneurial spirit and they're like this big corporate enterprise now and they've got all these hierarchies and whatnot but yeah, there's still so many, and they're like a they're an anomaly too. I don't think most large companies have anywhere near the percentage of uh, founders, you know, founder alum. Uh, 
maybe maybe some other companies in Silicon Valley, but I think Google's exceptional. Why, why do you do you have any? And I'm just asking. I'm curious. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I could I could take a stab at it, and I love yeah, your do it. thoughts. Is I know you know Bill Campbell had a huge impact on them early with how he helped and managed, and then also just knowing you know let's go to John Dewar and OKRs, and I know they're very much OKR led. So how they how they process and how their SOPs are. Maybe it's so finely tuned there that, you know, when these people learn these skill sets, um, it's just like, you know, OKRs are a huge part of our business and knowing that, you know, Google does them and how they do them. And I'm sure it's much better than how we currently do them. You learning how to build that out because that's what ties everyone together. That's what gives everyone the purpose is the objectives and key results. If, if you learn how to do that at a very high level, I don't feel like it's very hard to, to go out and do something and build it because you know exactly how to cascade that down to make sure everyone knows exactly what they're going to do, how they're responsible for doing it. And that that's, that's the biggest part is, is people understanding their roles and their importance to the bigger picture. So that's just my big guess, but I have no is idea. Is that the most important framework in your business? Like more important than anything like agile software methodology or challenge or sales methodology or whatever, you know, financial strategies or methodologies is, is the OKR framework, the most important framework that uh batch service uses. Uh, I think it goes hand in hand. You have to have the talented people to execute it, but I, I don't think one's more important or I think one is just as important as the other. If, if we don't have, a vision, a concept in quarter by quarter, year by year of this is what we're doing. And this is the responsibility for each and like each and every person in our company has an OKR and a responsibility and understand why they're doing and what they're doing and how it's important to our ultimate goal. That's what ties the whole company together. I, I think it's the most important thing. But if you don't have talent, it's useless, if that makes sense. Yeah, but like from a framework perspective, though, um, like obviously talent, you know, you got people process and uh, product, but uh, like from the process perspective, you know, you have frameworks and you could have like agile methodology for software development and you could, you know, that's for engineering teams and you could have, you know, OKRs for, you know, product and business teams. You could have, uh, you know, like challenger sales or spin selling or whatever for your sales team. Yeah, uh, maybe like the executive team follows like an EOS or something like no, that. We, we all follow OKRs. There's just each a different each department has, you know, a little bit of their tweaks and differences, but everything is tied to the OKRs of the business. Interesting. OK, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, all right, Jesse, what else? Uh, what else do we do you want to touch on that I didn't touch on already? Man, I don't know. We've we went through a bunch. It's real estate, software. Um, I'm kind of looking on my list, my, you know, my CGO gives me talking points and stuff like that on PR stuff. I'm trying to think, uh, yeah, I, I don't know the, we kind of touched on everything we've talked on culture, growth, kind of how the best places to work was, you know, super important, but at the end of the day. I just I think the biggest thing I've learned is, you know, we kind of started building the plane as we were flying it. But one thing that has really stuck with me over the last four or five years on how we've been so successful is um is the people. It it's really been finding the right people, having people passionate and um 
pouring into their growth and development and truly caring about them as a person just as much as you know someone that works here and we've kind of done that from the top down and it's it's paid dividends and one of my favorite parts of about why I continue to want to do this is when someone comes on and you see the potential in them that they don't even see yet and then you grow them and they start seeing it and start believing in themselves that that's the most fulfilling and rewarding thing to me is is having people start believing in themselves and start seeing the success that that they maybe never thought they'd even have and i think i'm just a softy for that because i was you know working in restaurants i was this and then i didn't believe in myself a lot and i had confidence issues and being able to once people believe in you and you start learning and reading and challenging yourself, I think people have a lot more potential than they realize. And it's not as hard as you think to start becoming successful and having some of your dreams come true. And that's been, that's been the funnest part for me is, is seeing people go through that journey because I just know what it meant to me. And if I could be a small part of that, it's very fulfilling for me. So my first guest uh, on this podcast was Chris Wink, and he's been studying entrepreneurs. Uh, he has a, uh, it's like a regional, uh, it's called Technically Media. It's like regional sort of, maybe you've heard of it. It's uh, mostly in like between, I think, Boston to DC and out to Pittsburgh. It's a regional tech publication. They've got all the major cities covered in this area. And uh, so he's been studying entrepreneurs for almost two decades now. Uh, and we were talking about the dial, like the three dials of luck, skills and perseverance and uh like what plays into success for an entrepreneur and uh what would you like if you had to put each of those on like a, a zero out of ten what would you say was your three dials oh man um perseverance definitely is way up there um but that's so funny you mentioned that all three of those are a huge factor into how we had success like we were definitely when we started our first product it was very much right place right time right friends it just was this it was we we're lucky like i i won't say that like we were successful because of me like part of it had to do with luck at the beginning but we, we turned our lucky opportunity into something very special to where we poured and developed and learned and did and persevered and did all those things i think it started with a little bit of luck and that little drop of luck we grabbed it and we ran the hell out of it is is really what we did, to be honest with you. Yeah, I love that. Cool, man. Let's close on one more. Um, do you track your Lamborghini? <laughs> I never drive it. Actually, I'm putting it up for sale. I think I've had it for two and a half years and put less than 2,000 miles on it. But I have <laughs> not. And I can't because it has an expensive body kit. It has expensive wheels and tires. And Oh, man. It's also supercharged to where it'd get a little squirrely on the track. It's more of a straight line Lamborghini. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> it's really fast. Uh, but you know, that was something I always thought I wanted or needed. And once I got it, you realize it's just another thing, but it was, it was a cool trophy. You know, I, I love cars too. I'm just so busy. I don't have time to drive or I just choose not to. It's obviously not that important to me. I it's cool to look at in the garage, I guess. It's like a very expensive, you know, garage decoration, I suppose. But um, <laughs> I think someone else should go enjoy it. It's an awesome car. It's super fun. But like, I'm just older now and driving like a crazy person, doing stupid shit is just not what I'm trying to do today. 
I just had my first son. He's th- three and a half months. And congrats, man. You know, just risk versus reward is like, you know, I have different responsibilities now. It's so weird that I'm saying this because I'd like. No, I totally agree with you, man. I used to have, uh, I've had like three Z06s and uh, like put it, you know, did a bunch of like engine tuning and like, you know, cat, you know, uh, deleted cats and all that crazy stuff. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I feel the same way. You know, I'm just like, for me, the most important things that I value is like the people in my life and, you know, experiences like traveling, going places meeting new people, culture, all that kind of stuff. So um, I totally agree with you on that. I just, I don't have the, (laughs) it's crazy, but I just, you know, you change, you evolve. And not saying I don't want or will have other supercars. It's just this time, at this time in my life, I don't have time to go track and go like, I'm trying to build this business. Like that's my focus and support my family and support the team members that work here, not, to go track my car every week. And like, I have to work on the weekend. still. I have stuff I need to do. And uh, I love golfing and playing pickleball and doing a lot of active things too, to where that's more fun to me than going and, and driving a car around. And, and that's an expensive hobby anyways, that I just don't need to have at this yeah, moment. Absolutely. All right, man. I think it was a good episode and uh, we can close it here. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah.